Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And uh, before we've had the first debate and the second debate, the DNC announces the terms for debate number three. Off and running, folks. We're in the middle of 2020. Madness. What do you say? Here we go. It is The Bill Press Show on this Wednesday. Wednesday, May 29, wrapping up the month of May here pretty quickly with this uh, last week of the uh, extended two-hour Bill Press show. Welcome, welcome to the program. Great to see you today. Uh, We are uh, rolling with a lot of news going on with President Trump back from, boy, it's hard to say this, still two and a half years in, it's still hard to say President Trump, with Donald Trump. Back from uh, Japan with a totally wasted, useless trip. Everybody is uh, asking, well, you know, this is a big foreign policy trip. We're always looking for the uh, big delivery. What was the delivery? Yeah, the only delivery for this trip was the delivery of that stupid presidential trophy uh, made up for the occasion. Didn't exist before. Stupid presidential trophy to the sumo wrestler uh, in the ring in Japan. Yeah, you and I paid a lot of money to send Donald Trump over there uh, to <laughs> give that trophy. We could have sent it by UPS. It would have been a hell of a lot cheaper. Uh, with that, we've got lots to talk about. And uh, yes, Donald Trump can't seem to let go of Joe Biden. He continued the tweet storm against Joe Biden yesterday, and Biden loves it, making a lot of money off it. Great to see you today again. Thanks for joining us. Your comments on the news of the day. Look forward to hearing from you on Twitter, at BP Show. On Twitter, at BP Show. Lots of news coming up, but first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, yes, yes. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. How you feeling, Bill? You feeling a little worn down? You feeling a little worn out, a little tired? Maybe you've been working too much? No. A lot of people feel that. No, uh, I feel great. A lot of people feel that. Well, the World Health Organization put out a statement yesterday. They said that burnout 
like work burnout, yeah, is not a medical condition. Now there has been some uh, discussion over whether or not it could be classified as an actual medical condition, and then. Uh, Earlier this week, the World Health Organization mistakenly said that it had listed occupational burnout in its international classification of diseases for the very first time. So there have been people who have been fighting to make this a disease for it to be classified yeah, as a disease. Yeah. And it appeared as though they were going to recognize it. Well, yesterday they clarified it and they said, no, no, it remains, quote, an occupational phenomenon that could lead someone to seek care but it is not a medical condition. All right. So, what should I do? Should I see a doctor? Well, if you're not, if you're not, not, yeah. If I mean, you're not feeling burnt out, then you got no problem. Well, Jack. maybe I should see a doctor. Say, why aren't I feeling burnt <laughs> yeah, out? Exactly. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, but a lot of people feel this, and they say, "What's okay, wrong with me?" Yeah. Right. I feel good. A lot of people feel <laughs> this, and what they're saying is, this is not a medical condition. This is just something that uh, that's just a, a sort of a byproduct of, of working too much. Okay, so how many times have you heard, like, oh, if you have a craving, that means your body is telling you that it needs something, right? Like, if you need, if you're, like, craving a cheeseburger, maybe people will say, like, oh, your body's just craving more calories for whatever reason, right? Well, there is a new study that says, no, that's actually not the case. That's actually not the case. Those are just impulses that we are trying, that we are like allowing ourselves to indulge in that might not be the healthiest thing. So like uh, five guys don't have a craving. Once in a while I have a craving for five guys. If, if it's once in a while, <laughs> they, the, the no, just study once says in a while. like if you have cravings for certain things, you should indulge them sometimes. But like yeah. if your body is constantly saying like, oh, you need to have a giant bowl of ice cream after dinner, or you need to have a five guys cheeseburger every Tuesday. That's Little not, bacon cheeseburger. That's not your body talking to you. That's uh-huh. just you uh, indulging in, in your impulse. Either way, uh, you know, my rule is when you feel that inclination, give in. Yeah, sure. This is the Bill Press Show. Donald Trump just can't quit Joe Biden. Uh Uh-uh. Tweets about him every day, several times a day. Is he running scared already of Joe Biden? Somebody will tell him maybe, hey, Biden's not the nominee yet, and he may not be. What do you say, folks? Here we go. Happy, happy Wednesday. It is a Wednesday, May 29. Uh, Good to see you. Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. The Bill Press Show. That is our last Wednesday show together of the two-hour variety before we move into a podcast version of The Bill Press Show next week. Great to see you, and thank you for joining us online, on the radio, and on television As we reach out to you from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day, such as it is with Congress out of town, not a lot going on here in Washington, D.C., but plenty to talk about, plenty to fill the next two hours with uh, our lineup of great guests. Jordan Fabian joining us from the Hill. He covers the White House for the Hill. Hunter Walker, national correspondent for um, Yahoo News also covers the White House. 
and Ellen Nilsson from Vox, political and policy reporter for Vox, all joining us uh, as we come to you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Very, very important. So many of you have uh, chimed in to say, hey, you know, I always hear you talking about signing up for the podcast, but I never did it until I realized uh, that the daily two-hour show is not going to be around, so we're, the podcast is the only way we're going to be able to keep in touch with each other. So we've signed up for the podcast, and if you haven't done so, do it now. Go to BillPressShow.com uh, or, and, and sign up for the podcast, and you'll be able to find us, of course, wherever you uh, get your podcast, uh, whether it's a podcast app or iHeartRadio or whatever. And then um, we great to see you on television again, coast to coast on Free Speech TV, the nation's only one progressive cable channel. Check it out. You got uh, uh, the direct TV and also joining on the radio statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and on the great WCPT in Chicago. Yes, indeed. A little breaking news as we start the show today. Uh, just came out from the Democratic National Committee. We've talked uh, with uh, Chairman Tom Perez here in the studio just last week about the rules and the qualifications for the first and second Democratic debates of 2020. Uh, the DNC announcing today the dates and the new rules for the September and October debates. Uh, there are going to be a, t a total of 12 presidential primary debates, and they start next month. So before we get into the new rules, uh, just to remind ourselves what the existing, uh, what's already set up. First debate is next month, just around the corner, Saturday, uh, June 26 and 27 in Miami. Uh, that debate will be covered by, uh, it'll be broadcast two nights in a row, 26, 27, back to back, NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo. In July, the second debate well, max 20 candidates, by the way, for each of these. Uh, in July, the second debate will be held in Detroit, carried on CNN on July 30 and 31. And the in order to qualify to get on stage for the first and second debate, you must meet one of two criteria. If you meet both, you've got a better chance of getting on stage. You know, the first is you have to score at least 1% in three different polls that are named by, C, uh, by uh, DNC as reputable nationwide polls, or, and or, uh, you have to show your strength in grassroots fundraising. And the way to do so is to have at least 65,000 donors. By the way, that could be just a buck a piece, five bucks a piece, whatever. Uh, no floor, uh, and 65,000 donors, and at least 200 donors, they, they can't all be from one state or one city, right? At least 200 donors in 20 states. So those are the first two debates. And everybody said it's going to get a little tougher for three and four. Well, let's go into uh, the third debate will be uh, September, so no debate in August, September 12th. And September 13, uh, and that will be carried on ABC News. Remember, Fox News doesn't get a debate. 
uh, ABC News, <coughs> pardon me, uh, and on ABC it will be in partnership with Univision. Univision will do the uh, Spanish translation. Um, it's also going to be available that same night on Hulu Live, the Roku Channel, and Facebook Watch, among other outlets. Um, the <clears throat> doesn't say exactly here what city that's going to be held in. But at any rate, they do change. We'll let you know when we find that out. Uh, they do change the uh, criteria for getting on stage in the third and the fourth debate. The fourth debate will be held in October. Um, and no um, TV channel has been announced for that yet. So, By the way, location, of, format, uh, and moderators yeah. have not been announced yet. Have not been announced. Okay, yeah. good. But here's what you need to do to get into the third debate. Uh, you need, instead of 1%, 2% in at least, not three, but four national polls. So you got to get up to at least 2% at least four national polls for this second debate. And instead of 65,000 donors, you need at least 130,000 unique donors, uh, at least, and remember again, so that's sort of double, that is double, um, and it could be as little as a dollar, but double the number of donors. And you have to have, instead of 200, 400 unique donors in at least 20 states. So basically, uh, it goes up from uh, three polls to four polls and uh, doubling the number of donors that you have to have for the, uh, for the third debate. And that same criteria will, be, um, will hold true for the fourth debate, which will be in October. So uh, less than a month from now, we will have the first Democratic debate with at least 20 candidates uh, on stage uh, in Miami. It'll be over by now. We will be talking about what happened in that first Democratic debate. That is a breaking news uh, this morning. Yes, indeed. Um, the other big story of the day, of course, is, you know, I think, I think Donald Trump should just stop trying to uh, take on Democratic leaders because he keeps losing. You know, last week, before he left for Japan, he got into this back and forth with Nancy Pelosi, and he got his clock cleaned. I mean, Nancy Pelosi just, she won that hands down, that little back and forth about uh, his storming out of the meeting uh, down at the White House and brushing into the Rose Garden and pretending to just have decide I'm going to go out and hold a spontaneous news conference when, in fact, it's clear, and everybody who works down at the White House has told us it's clear that whole thing was planned ahead of time. And so Nancy Pelosi then really got under his skin by accusing, first of all, she did before the meeting, by accusing him of um, uh, carrying on a great big cover-up, which he has since he's been in office, even before, a giant cover-up on many fronts. Hello, where are those tax returns, Donald? Uh, she got under his skin then. Then she got under his skin when she accused him of, of uh, carrying out a temper tantrum by storming out of the meeting, which he did. <laughs> and then she really got under his skin when she said, I just pray for him. That was her response when he, he came back at her and 
and said she was a liar and called her crazy Nancy. She, I pray for him. I pray for the United States of America. And then finally, what really got him rattled was when she said uh, that what we really needed was for the family to stage an intervention, right, suggesting that maybe it was time to consider the 25th Amendment and get him out of there because he has gone totally bonkers. At any rate, uh, Donald Trump just got buffaloed totally by Nancy Pelosi. So if this, as if that wasn't bad enough, as if he didn't learn any lesson, then he goes off to Japan and he starts taking on Joe Biden, thereby pissing off not just Democrats but Republicans because here he is on foreign soil praising the murderous dictator Kim Jong-un, praising Kim Jong-un, saying how smart he was, and in the same breath saying he agreed with Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un that Joe Biden was a low IQ individual uh, and went on and on about Joe Biden, wouldn't stop tweeting, went all the way to Japan and and. And all he's tweeting about is not about the Japanese visit, about Joe Biden. And Republican, again, Republic, several Republican members of Congress and the Senate were saying, what the hell? You know, this is not what a foreign trip is all about. You don't go, to, you don't go on foreign soil and then use your time praising dictators uh, and bashing uh, a fellow American and a former vice president of the United States. Uh, and Biden, meanwhile, so there were people who did, Democrats and Republicans, who said this was uh, unacceptable behavior. Uh, Biden bit his tongue until yesterday when Donald Trump landed back at the White House on Marine One, Air Force One to Joint Base Air Andrews, and then took Marine One to the White House. But no sooner was Donald Trump back on White House soil than Joe Biden finally responded, his office putting out a statement saying, the president's comments are beneath the dignity of the office. Again, noted, he waited until Donald Trump was on U.S. soil, actually on White House soil. The president's comments are beneath the dignity of the office, His, uh, the Biden campaign said, quote, to be on foreign soil on Memorial Day and to side repeatedly with a murderous dictator against a fellow American and former vice president speaks for itself. Boom. Score. Biden won. Trump zero. Uh, and then the funniest thing was, Trump tried to get away with this, actually. Then he turned around. Trump tweeted yesterday afternoon. I laughed out loud when I saw this tweet, saying, actually, he was defending Joe Biden because, Donald, uh, because Kim Jong-un had said Biden was a low IQ idiot. And Trump said all he said was that Biden was a low IQ individual. Therefore, he was actually helping Joe Biden. And he actually said, he ended his tweet by saying, um, who could possibly be upset with that? <laughs> that effect, that he called him a low IQ individual instead of a low IQ idiot. Who could possibly be upset by that? God, I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi is right. It's time for an intervention. Well, one critic of Donald Trump. So, by the way, keep at it, Donald Trump. I mean, if you were Joe Biden, this is just what you want. Because Donald Trump is making it appear as if Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee, which he is not now and may never be. No guarantee of that. He's a frontrunner, but it doesn't mean he's going to end up being the nominee. But, but Trump is making him look like the nominee. And Joe Biden is doing nothing but raising money out of it. He put out a big fundraiser right away saying, obviously, 
we've got Donald Trump rattled, and you got to help keep it going. So this is good for Biden, bad for Trump. I don't know why he's doing it. Uh, one person, another critic of uh, Donald Trump, got a great reception last night. We're talking about Republican Congressman Justin Amash out in with uh, Michigan. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is Trump country. It's red district. You know, it's Jerry Ford's uh, hometown. Uh, but uh, Justin Amash, who came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, becoming the first, rep- first and only uh, Republican congressman to say, to do two things. Number one, to have read the Mueller report. And two, to come forward and saying, after having read the Mueller report, I do believe that Donald Trump committed impeachable offenses and that we should begin impeachment hearings. Uh, Amash, other than that, has kept pretty much to himself. Last night he came out, uh, held a town meeting in his hometown, and got a standing ovation when the very first person he called on uh, said, I may disagree with you, but you got guts, man. First, I want to salute your courage. And that's... And the applause went on and on. It was one of several standing ovations that uh, that Amash got last night. And he pointed out to the crowd, look, um, you know, don't think that impeachment is easy. It's a long road, and uh, Donald Trump even could survive it like Bill Clinton did. But he's certainly still in office while this is going on. For those who are worried about, um, you know, Congress intruding on the president's powers consistently, it is a difficult process to remove someone from office. It's not easy. So no one's suggesting that just because you start some inquiry or process that a person's removed from office. Nonetheless, we have a job to do. And I think we owe it to the American people to, uh, to represent them, to ensure that the people we have in office are doing the right thing, are of good character, aren't violating the public trust. And, um, yep, we got our job to do. And Justin Amash says, you know, don't look down on the process of impeachment. Um, it is something that distinguishes us as Americans from uh, a lot of other countries on the planet. You see countries around the world where people do not respect the rule of law and they don't care about the character of their leaders. They don't care about the ethics of their leaders. And in these countries, all that matters is that your person is in power And as long as your person's in power, that person's allowed to do whatever they want. Yep, indeed. Uh, And Justin Amash says, look, we got our, as members of Congress, Republican or Democrat, we've got a job to do. And the first job, he said, in light of the Mueller investigation, was to read the report. I think it's really important that we do our job as a Congress that we not allow misconduct to go undeterred, that we not just say someone can violate the public trust and that there are no consequences to it. And if, if you get a chance, I encourage you all to read uh, the tweet where it lays all of this out. Mueller's report lays all of this out. and. Uh, I'm confident that if you read volume two, you will be appalled at much of the conduct. And, um, and I was appalled 
bias. And by the way, um, he did say also. Uh, can, I, can I also just yeah. point out? We said this before, right? Like this is what the Democrats should be saying yeah. here, yeah. right? Whether yeah. or not you you agree or disagree that impeachment is the right route, or whether or not it's politically the smart move, or whatever, this is their job. They should be doing it. Yeah, make and also they should be making the case as clearly as Justin Amash has made. I mean, he's yeah. making the best argument that anybody has made. Yeah, it takes a lot of, by the way, it takes a lot of guts for him to do what he did. Uh, you know, you have to admire his courage. First of all, to to make take the stand that he took, and then to come out at that town hall yesterday, and yeah. I think he gets a, a lot of points even from people who disagree with him. I think that's what you want. You know, you don't you don't have to agree a hundred percent with everything your elected official does, but you want to know that they're doing what they think, what they really they're, they're working their ass off, that they're doing their job, and they're doing what they really think is best for the country. One of the things that one of the questions that was asked last night at the town hall. Uh, that I didn't pull because the audio wasn't great of it, but it, someone asked him, can we have a mulligan on the election? Uh, yeah, right. And I think that this is the real question for Justin Amash, right, it, is he can yeah. either read the direction that, that the or read the mood of the voters, at least in his district, saying, wow, we really screwed up. We didn't want Donald Trump. We thought we wanted Donald Trump as president. Now that we see what he's doing, we definitely don't want that anymore. And he could, you know, have a moment here and encourage other people to come forward who are who are having similar uh, rumblings in their district. Or an even crazier right winger will primary him and and yeah. defeat him. We don't, right. Who knows? We'll have yeah. to. We'll just have to. Wait there, and see. He will have a primary challenge. I'm for sure he will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll send him a check. Um, by the way, uh, yeah. So you don't hear that very we, often. I, <laughs> we do have a, a mulligan, by the way. Uh, we have a mulligan in 2020, uh, and uh, damn, better take advantage of it too. A final point on Amash: uh, in his tweets, original tweets, he not only um, was critical of Donald Trump, but also critical of uh, Attorney General, if you use that term, the so-called Attorney General Bill, Mar uh, Bill Barr, uh, for totally misrepresenting the Mueller report to the American people and to the Congress. Uh, and yesterday, uh, an, a, another uh, top Republican uh, caught some criticism from Justin Amash, and that is the Republican leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who is nothing but a Trump sycophant and who, of course, made fun of Amash and said all Amash was doing this because he wanted to get his name in the headlines. Justin Amash fires back. You saw what happened to me from our uh, so-called leader, Kevin McCarthy. I I read the Mueller report. I'm sure he did not read it. Uh, I love the fact that he calls him his the so-called uh, Republican leader. Yeah. Uh, speaking of so-called Republican leaders, uh, not that we should be surprised by this, but uh, we remember Merrick Garland. Yes. Donald Trump's, I mean, I'm sorry, Barack Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court uh, upon the death of Justin Antonin Scalia. Uh, but that was back in 2016, where there's a presidential election going on. And, of course, Mitch McConnell said, oh, no, we can't, we cannot decide on a Supreme Court nominee because the presidency is going to change at the end of this year, and so we have to let the American people decide who is not who is going to get to
to nominate the next the Supreme Court nominee. It was a total fraudulent, bogus, outrageous claim. But Mitch McConnell got away with it. Merrick Garland, President uh, Obama's nominee, didn't even get one hearing, let alone a vote, uh, under that principle that in a presidential election year, uh, Congress should not confirm anybody new to the Supreme Court. This was McConnell just made up this rule. Well, now we're approaching 2020. Yesterday in Kentucky, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's running for re-election, uh, giving a speech somewhere, and someone in the audience asks, uh, okay, let's say in 2020, next year, uh, a Supreme Court justice dies. What will you do? In other words, will we follow the same rule that he established and followed in 2016? According to reports, McConnell took a, took time, took waited for a second, took a sip of his iced tea, and then said, oh, we'll fill it. Of course he would. Well, I am shocked. Touch a shock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there were several people who had heart attacks on the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. I declare. Uh, what, what do you expect from Mitch McConnell, right? Of course he would. I mean, he, among all the ass kisses of Donald Trump, among all the worthless, totally worthless human beings in the United States Congress, Mitch McConnell is the absolute worst. Believes in nothing uh, but himself and the Republican Party uh, and uh, totally always puts party over country. Um, one last thing. We don't really have time to get into this. Maybe we'll kick it around more. Uh, a bit <laughs> this but, is always dangerous territory. No, but I'm just... Uh, okay, this is a problem I'll never have, right? Go ahead. What to do with my $36 billion. Oh, yeah, gosh. You know, Don't you hate that? Yeah, but uh, I, I've been intrigued by this ever since yesterday. It was announced that um, Mer Mercedes, I think her name is, right? Mercedes McKenzie. McKenzie. McKenzie Bezos, Jeff Bezos, now ex-wife, uh, out of the divorce, she got $36 billion. And there's this group that Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and a few others started called, I think Jeff Bezos was one of them too, uh, they started this thing called the Giving Pledge. And these are people who've got so much money they couldn't even burn it, right? And um, they've agreed under the Giving Pledge to give away half of their fortune to charities of their choice. And we know Bill and Melinda Gates, he and his wife, have done a lot, and particularly for uh, health care uh, in Africa and, um, uh, and, and other great causes around the world, environmental causes too, climate change. Uh, so um, Mackenzie Bezos yesterday said she is going to join the Giving Pledge uh, and give uh, up to $18 billion uh, to charity, which is phenomenal, right? I mean, so generous. At the same time, you know, there are some critics of this who say, yeah, but this means that people, these people don't pay taxes on this money and they spend it any way they want for whatever they want, not necessarily what the public really needs, like helping you know, take care of our national parks or providing, improving our schools or whatever, and that maybe they should pay taxes first and then give that money away. As I say... I don't expect ever to have that problem. I certainly don't have it now. 
Uh, and I'm torn about it because, yeah, I'd like them to pay taxes at the same time. You know, some of our tax dollars go to a lot of stuff that I wouldn't support either. And I'd hate to see her give that $9 billion of that $18 billion to Donald Trump to spend for his freaking wall. Yeah, that's how the wall gets built. I'd rather have, have her give it to, you know, build some new schools in, in Africa or India or someplace where they need them. Or here in the United States. At any rate, uh, think about that. Think about that. Uh, and I will take the pledge right now. I've got about $150 saved up. All right. I'll take the pledge. I'll give half of it away. 75 bucks. It's about my share. Uh, when we come back, what's going on at the White House now that Donald Trump is back? Jordan Fabian's got it covered for The Hill. He joins us next in the studio. Give us a quick break, and we'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. And on a Wednesday, May 29, here we are, The Bill Press Show. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. As we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. Nobody works harder to protect American families and the good men and women of our firefighting departments across the land. You see them every day roaring by uh, to help someone in distress. Uh, Give them a big wave and thank them for the support of the uh, Bill Press Show under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger. And their website is iaf.org. Check it out, and um, you can find out all the other great things that they are up to. Uh, Join me in saying hello and welcoming here to the last Wednesday edition of the Bill Press Show, our good friend from uh, The Hill, Jordan Fabian, covers the White House for The Hill. Jordan, it's good to see you. You too, Bill. And it's been fun to have you along for the ride. Yeah, it's been great. And we got more to, more more miles to go in Absolutely. a different in a different format, right? So, yeah. um, you were not on the uh, trip to Japan, but uh, everybody keeps scratching their head and asking, "What was this trip all about?" Well, it was ostensibly about the new emperor in Japan, but really, you know, President Trump likes being the center of attention at, at these international <laughs> trips. No kidding. Indeed. <laughs> like, like if, if you put him in the, uh, the scenario where he's at one of these big summits <laughs> with a bunch of world leaders, he gets very uncomfortable and he doesn't like that. So I think this trip is appealing to him because he was, you know, the, the red carpet was rolled out for him in, in Japan, literally. And, uh, you know, he got to go to a sumo match and a state dinner in his honor and all that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, everybody was looking for the delivery, right? Yes. And I think Hallie Jackson from NBC said the only delivery was the delivery of the trophy, right? Yes. <laughs> I think it was enormous. It was. Yeah. I mean, he had to have help carrying it, right? Yeah. So Weight it was, over 60 I don't know if pounds. everyone has seen it, but yeah, it's a 60 pound silver cup that, that was created just, this did not exist, right? It was correct. created just for this reason. Correct. Right. And uh, I think the president needed some help from one of the sumo masters getting it off the table to hand to the. The champion wrestler. So it, it was. It was huge. Yeah, huge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> huge. Right. Uh, and um, if not that much was accomplished, there were um, some eyebrows raised by the fact that uh, certainly one thing that Donald Trump did not do was leave domestic politics behind. No, and if you looked at this trip on paper, it would have been a nice respite for him from some of the troubles going on back home between you know, some court defeats in the investigations and you know Joe Biden continuing to game steam in the Democratic field, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he, he was really fixated on 
events back home and, and also other you know, international conflicts that put him at odds with the Japanese prime minister, namely this uh, the situation with North Korea, where yeah. he uh, at a joint press conference on, uh, I guess, Monday uh, at Japan time. He, he essentially contradicted uh, Shinzo Abe in saying that, well, you know, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really worried about this missile launch, and uh, it's fine. Even though Abe and even Trump's own administration had called it a violation of UN Security Council resolutions and a very alarming thing. Well, yeah, but he not so he disagreed at one at one time there with the Japanese Prime Minister and with his own National Security yes. Advisor John wants, Bolton. Yeah, he said that on Saturday. Yeah, where uh, my people say this. They're worried about this. I'm not basically. I'm paraphrasing, but right, which is unusual for to say the least. Right. Yeah, although not definitely not the first time we've seen that from this president. I mean, think to, yeah. think back to even the the North Korea sanctions that he he tried to stop uh, just a, a month or two ago. Um, so clearly, or, there's or there's, back to Rex Tillerson when he said, "Remember, don't stop stop thinking about." Having talks with North Korea, yes. that was early, early on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could fill an entire show with examples, I think, Bill. Um, right. But, yeah, this, so this this really caused some, I think it caused some friction, uh, certainly among the Japanese who want to see the U.S. maintain a hard line against North Korea. And then there was also the issue of trade, where uh, you know, we were told by administration officials before this trip that, oh, there might be some big announcements and we want to make progress toward a bilateral trade deal with Japan. And uh, you know the, the president talked very optimistically about getting that done by the end of the summer. But then at the end of the trip, uh, I think Japan's top economic official said, well, that's just expressing his desires. And we're not really sure if we can get a deal done by August. So even uh, the little, uh, you know, a smaller step uh, in the grand scheme of things, it didn't seem to really make progress toward, toward that on this four-day trip. What does it say about tr- uh, the Trump sort he- it's like he can't quit Joe Biden. Even when he got home, he was tweeting about Joe Biden, right? I mean, and there was nothing over there that I know of that would trigger his having to talk about Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden hadn't hadn't not like given a speech attacking him or something. He wasn't responding to anything. It was just like he's just fixated on this. What does yeah. it say to you? Or what do you? Well, I think what it says is is the Joe Biden is certainly in President's in President Trump's head. Uh, I think that you know, Biden clearly poses a threat to uh, the president's uh, base, uh, you know, white working class mm-hmm. people. Uh, you know, I think that Pennsylvania, Michigan, yeah, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Yeah, the, those core states that he needs to win. Uh, Biden has been going after them hard. And also, uh, I will say that, you know, the president has basically wanted to do everything uh, the opposite of the Obama administration. That, that's been. Uh, really a theme of, of his presidency is is knocking back the right. President Obama's right. accomplishments. And so uh, he also views Biden as an extension of the Obama administration. So that's another animating factor in, in this reaction that you're seeing uh, by Trump against Biden. Uh, now, I can't resist. Uh, there were a couple of there were a few funny moments uh, in, in the trip um, and we got sound for a couple of them. Uh, so first of all, the president was over there. In fact, the, when he made his comments about Joe Biden and praising Kim Jong Un and trashing Joe Biden in the same sentence, happened to be a Memorial Day, uh, and uh, well, it's Memorial Day for us, but not necessarily for uh, the Japanese. But the president uh, could not resist greeting Japanese troops here. 
Well, thank you very much. And I want to start by saying happy Memorial Day. Happy Memorial Day. It's ありがとうございます。最初にメモリアルでおめでとうございますという言葉で始めたいと思います。<笑> Thank you very much. And the, <laughs> the video, the translator jumps in and Donald Trump's going, What? what are He you doing? He had no <laughs> idea what was happening. <laughs> It is kind of funny. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, just wishing the Japanese troops a happy I mean, this is the thing、day. with him, right? Is the, the, these little <laughs> protocol things on these foreign trips, and、uh, he kind of plows right through them, doesn't he? <laughs> no, he、yeah. does, does indeed. And then、uh, he went on this aircraft carrier, and they were. It was they, the USS.、Uh, Uh, Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford, the Gerald USS Ford. Gerald Ford.、Uh, and so, you know, we've seen so many pictures of this. I've never been on one that, where these catapults basically throw the jets off, right?、Uh, off the deck.、Uh, well, they were having a little problems with this one. So, Donald Trump, the ultimate fixer, says, here's, how, here's, your, here's your answer. They have a $900 million cost overrun on this crazy electric catapult. I said, what was wrong with steam? So, what's wrong with steam? He said. And he basically said, if you're going to sign an order from now on, the catapults and aircraft carriers are going to be run by steam, right? Yeah. And, and this is, this, he's actually been fixated on this issue for a number of years where、oh. the, the Navy is moving yeah, from a steam based catapult system on the aircraft carriers to an electric one. And he thinks that, you know, you don't, you know, don't mess with success. This is a, a bad idea to move to electric. And so he's been talking about this for a couple of years. And, Yeah, he, he gets fixated on, on these little things. Oh, I mean, yeah, think yeah. about the, the design of the wall. You know, he's been recommending contractors, recommending designs. You know, he really fancies himself a builder, so he, he likes to get involved in the nitty gritty details that,、uh, you know, another president would have probably delegated to、uh, a subordinate.、Uh, yeah, way down the line. Way down the line. No,、yeah. I know. <laughs> It's not like the Secretary of Defense would be、uh, you know, personally designing the catapult system. It is kind of funny to think to, for somebody to recommend to go back to steam. You know, like you think of this yeah, steam engine, Eli Whitney, right? right. But、um, yeah, you, you mentioned about the wall.、Uh, there's this contractor in North Dakota,、um, Fisher, I think, a company. So that's what Donald Trump said. They're the company because they've been hired by some people who are building private, private sections of the wall on private land. So Donald Trump said they're the company that should be hired to build like the entire wall. Uh, just as a side note,、uh, I had dinner with a former、uh, Senator Byron Dorgan and his wife Saturday night. We did, Carol and I did. And,、um, and Byron Dorgan from North Dakota said, Well, I think if, if you're going to hire a Fisher and Company to build a wall, they should build a wall with Canada <laughs> <laughs> because they're in North Dakota. Yeah, it'd be a shorter drive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they don't have to send their people that far, anyhow. So, and, and,、uh, and that wall, that, that border. Totally unprotected. Right. So、um, you mentioned, and I, I, I did want to ask you about that, that last week was not a good week for the president on one front, at least, or at least on three fronts. There were three different judges in three different cases that ruled against the Trump White House on the border wall, on the financial records, and on the tax return. No, not the tax returns, the、um, uh, testifying, I think. Maybe it's the tax returns. Anyhow.、Yeah. But、um, so they've, they've decided to appeal all these decisions and not going so well, at least the first round.、Huh? Yeah, and I think it's,、uh, I think it's something that you know, Nancy Pelosi can take to her caucus, who many, some, some of whom are you know, restless to get moving on impeachment and say, you know, hey, this strategy of oversight and investigations 
is work is working for now, and and we're seeing some court victory. So let's let this play out. Uh, you know, will that keep the people who want impeachment at bay forever? No, I don't. It, certainly not. But it could buy her time to keep going down this path that they're going on uh, before uh, opening a, an impeachment inquiry if it comes to that. Right. Um, then the question is, what happens if so? Um, I, I, I heard Congressman Adam Schiff last week. I went to the Center for American Progress event. And the question was, are we in the middle of a constitutional crisis? And he said, no, not yet. He said, we're in the precipice of one. The point he made was, so we've ruled, we've sent subpoenas out, they've ignored our subpoenas. Now we've gone to the courts, and the courts have ruled at one level, and now it's going to be appealed, and it goes on up. But if it gets to the point where the appeals court or the Supreme Court says, you must turn over these records, and the Trump White House still refuses to comply. Adam Schiff said, then we're in a constitutional crisis. What What do you think this White House will do if the, if the Supreme Court says, you got to turn over the documents? It's going to be a big question for them. Uh, so far, their strategy has obviously been to stonewall and deny everything. And uh, it, I, you know, it, turning over the documents would certainly go <laughs> against that, but it would also be um, you know, in line with, with the law and in line with the judicial system. Um, so I, like, I, I, it's hard for me to predict, you know, what they would do because this white house can be unpredictable, but, um, certainly it would be, uh, you know, a change for them to start handing over these documents, uh, if it comes to that. But I mean, I, I think, I think it's pretty striking that what you're saying is, and I agree with you, it's not inconceivable that they would refuse to turn over the documents, even if the Supreme Court ruled. Yeah, I mean, I I, you know, I I don't have any any special insight, and in I haven't really asked someone that hypothetical. But uh, you know, they've been pretty adamant that all of these over oversight requests. If you look at the you know the the court documents they file, basically saying you know we believe this is outside of Congress's authority. We we think this is all political, so we're just not going to engage it. Period. Um, that seems you know pretty cut and dry to me. Uh, so. While you know a, a loss at the Supreme Court certainly would change the dynamic, uh, to put it lightly, uh, I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that they might not uh, grant those requests. Jo- Jordan Fabian here with us from The Hill. TheHill.com covers the White House for The Hill. It's down there every day for those uh, important briefings that we have every day at the White House. Uh, <laughs> how long has it been? At one point it was 72 days, and now it's got to be longer. I mean, but the last one, March 11th. I was- so whatever. Well, okay, I was. I'm there. terrible at math. So someone add that up and, and yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was. There. I remember that last one didn't last that long, and it wasn't that happy a day. But right. March 11, yeah, uh, and no sign that they're that they're planning on bringing them back. I saw this morning the State Department is resuming uh, frequent briefings, maybe not daily briefings. No sign that the White House is going to do so. Right? No, no, and uh, you, you know they're. Uh, yeah, I think it's something that the White House reporters have been demanding uh, for a long time, and uh, we've not seen any kind of movement on that at all, uh, which is certainly frustrating. Well, well, but let me ask you, yeah, and you know, I, I find it um, somewhat difficult to talk about because I think a lot of people say it's just us in the media who are whining, right, you know, because we're not getting our daily briefing. But it's a lot. It's, it's about a lot more than that, right? I mean, it's really about the 
the the right of the American people to know what their government is up to. Yeah, and and even the, and the opportunity for them to and find even out. for the White House, uh, I I would argue to them that it's actually in their interest to do briefings because absolutely, yeah, you know, they I found that you know, under the Obama administration there would be times where you know I talk to an official after a briefing and they say, oh, you, you know this this issue was on our radar, but that issue that a reporter asked about wasn't on our radar and the reason we we got it got on our radar was because of these briefings so uh i think it helps the white house understand you know what's on people's mind and it helps them you know prepare responses not only for the issues they're anticipating but then for later for the issues that they might not be anticipating but are are on people's minds so without the briefing right what opportunities do you have uh okay donald trump's going out to get on marine one right but that's maybe he'll stop you're asking Donald Trump a different kind of question than you're asking Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the briefing room. You just are. It's a, it's just a different style. Plus, he could just walk away, yeah. right? Which it, he does, or walk the, down the line, or absolutely. Yeah. Um. I mean, other than that, other than that, you know, it's hoping to, you know, corner Sarah or, or Hogan Gidley in, in his office in, in the West Wing, or waiting for them after they do cable television appearances uh, on the driveway and Fox and have, News, Fox News, right? Yeah, and, and and have some kind of informal gaggle out, out on the driveway, which uh, can be a bit silly because you have about, you know, it can get up to twenty, thirty journalists out there, and you know sometimes it's super hot and you can't get a good vantage point, you can't to ask a question, and uh, it's literally steps away uh, from yeah, the briefing room. I was, was going to say, yeah, they're yes. like right outside the door of the briefing room almost, yeah. right? So, which, is, which is really silly. So one one issue that I think uh, people have not been able to explore as they would were their briefings is this talk, which now has gone to more than just talk, about an investigation. Okay, the Mueller investigation is over. And on one hand, they say, Case closed. Put that behind us. Let's move on. On the other hand, they're saying, no, now we need a second investigation of the investigation and how that investigation, the Mueller investigation, got started. Is the president really serious? Is the White House really serious about that? Well, he it was unclear for a while, but last week he empowered <clears throat> the attorney general to declassify you know, documents and information from the intelligence community. So uh, that would seem to indicate that it is serious. And that they're taking this very seriously. Uh, they've they've also appointed a U.S. attorney out in Utah, or maybe it was Virginia. I, I forget. There's a couple of, of things going on there, but they they appointed a U.S. attorney outside yeah, of D.C. Yeah, yeah. Maybe from New England. I forget now, but I know what you mean. Not right. out, not in D.C. Yeah. So so there's that parallel track investigation going on as well. Right. So you have, you have but two he's not a lines. special counsel or no. whatever. But it, but it's just a you know standard U.S. attorney who's who's yeah. leading this. Yeah. Um. So I mean, they've taken steps to that would indicate that it's serious. We haven't seen any kind of outcome from from this. We haven't seen any kind of work product or report or even any evidence of of anything. So it's it's hard to say how much they're going to do, but they're acting as if it's serious. Right. But I mean, this would keep, in in a sense, I'm sure Donald Trump sees it as vindication. Right. It would prove, which he's alleged all along, that this was a Democratic plot cooked up by Hillary Clinton and 18 Democrats who work for Robert Mueller, all just out to get, and the FBI basically, he's called them traitors, right? That they were out to undermine his presidential campaign. That's how it all got started. So I'm sure he sees that as vindication. On the other hand, it could, seems to me, it could backfire, meaning it could really show that there was Carter Page, there was George Papadopoulos, there was really 
reason for the FBI to believe that there was a lot of hanky-panky going on between some members, some people aligned with Donald Trump and Russian agents. And we saw some of that backfire in uh, Devin Nunes's investigation in 2017 when he was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, where they came out with some documents essentially yeah. saying that you know, <laughs> the, 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 invest, the roots of the investigation were in what the Papadopoulos told the, the Australian ambassador, not necessarily the dossier. And, uh, and so that kind of undercut a lot of what Republicans have been claiming about the dossier being the origin for all this. And certainly there's a risk in that as you said, Bill, for additional information to come out that might undercut some of their claims. Right. Uh, yesterday, uh, speaking about all things White House, it was reported, I saw this on uh, CBS last night, that yet a second intruder uh, has been uh, uncovered who got into Mar-a-Lago. This was a 14-year-old high school student who went through a tunnel there's a tunnel from the beach into the resort or something, and he just did it because he said he wanted to see if he could get away with it, right? Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, your college, you know. Yeah, yeah right. Whatever. Uh, I think even high school. Um, but what does this say about security at Mar-a-Lago? This is the second. The, right, the Chinese woman was the other one who was course. actually taking people in maybe with the hope of yeah, meeting and the that, president. Yeah, and that breach yeah. seems to be far more serious. Right, uh, yeah. You know, possible ties to... Chinese intelligence and whatnot, but uh, yeah, no, certainly it's look. Uh, it, 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 I, I mean, I've, I've covered down trips there. down I there many times. Right. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been in the pool. Is it a secure facility? You know, there are there is a Secret Service <laughs> presence out there, and and you know, I think the Secret Service is doing their best to secure that. But you know, there are people coming out and in all the time when he's down there, and uh, it's not surprising that I think one or two people might have. Falling through the cracks, uh, you know. I, I covered an Easter Sunday brunch there, and it's just people coming, lines and lines of people coming in. And you know, this is not the White House. This is not. They don't have the same kind of security measures there. It's all kind of right. ad hoc. Yeah, it's a business, right? I yeah. mean, there there people coming in for brunch or using the pool or members or guests of members. And it and also all underscores that, that in addition to the security <laughs> aspect, we don't have we don't know who he's meeting with and who he's talking to there unless. You know, somebody posted on social media or something like that. And so, you know, I, 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 yeah, they're not releasing the White House visitor records anymore, but th there's at least a little more transparency about who he might be speaking to in the White House as opposed to his private club in South Florida where he, he is doing some business. He is talking to political supporters and officials and, and, you know, possibly even people from foreign countries about business that affects the United States. Oh, no, I've heard several stories from people who've been there who just, you know, and he comes by and he'll stop and talk and sit down and whatever. And, you know, these people have not been vetted at all. No. Right? Uh, they're, they're just in there. Okay. Now, you you hang around the White House a lot. Um, and I don't know whether you were there um, when uh, the president uh, met with the uh, farmers last week. But I just want to ask you, um, how calm was he? Yeah, Jordan. <laughs> was it a, now? Was a, I? Was it? Did I throw a temper tantrum, or was I really calm? Yeah, he's an extremely stable genius. Right? <laughs> was, yeah. Have you ever seen a situation where a president would would call on staffers to basically tell him the veritable Greek chorus? You know, right? Yeah, yeah. That that was certainly bizarre. I mean, it was a, one in a series of bizarre, you know, uh, little quasi press conferences he's had, but. 
Uh, you know, certainly he was frustrated with uh, Nancy Pelosi last week and over the in- infrastructure meeting blow up and and you know the and, and all 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 the stuff that's happening and uh, he, he basically just let it let loose. <laughs> yeah, and then calling on and all these people just yeah. stepping up and saying, "Yes, Mr. President, you are very calm, right?" Kellyanne Conway, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you mentioned Hogan Gridley, Larry Kudlow, Mercedes Schlapp. I don't know. Anybody else who was in eyesight, right? Yeah, I think it was about five people who kind of took turns uh, <laughs> attesting to his calmness. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for coming in. All right. Absolutely. Thanks again for being a part of the ride. You are a class act. You do a great job covering the White House. And uh, uh, it's been our privilege to have you uh, such an important part of the program. All thanks, right. Thanks a lot, Bill. Again, it's been great. Podcast goes on, Bill Press. We all go on. And the show goes on now with Hunter Walker joining us as a friend of Bill for the next hour. Quick break, and we'll be right this back. Is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The DNC today announcing the rules for the third and fourth debates coming up in September and October. You have to be up to 2% in at least four polls, and you have to have twice as many grassroots donors. We'll see how many people drop out and can't meet that category, or that, those criteria. What do you say, everybody? It is a Wednesday, Wednesday, May 29. So good to see you today. And welcome to the program here, uh, the last official two-hour version of the Bill Press Show before we, before we move into podcast mode starting uh, next week. So uh, doubly good to have you have you with us. And we, as we come to you from Washington, D.C., as always, and joining you uh, all across this great land of ours, coast to coast, on the radio, online, and on television. And to help us through this last hour together today, uh, our good friend from Yahoo News, fresh back from Cuba, Hunter Walker, <laughs> uh, the Buena Vista Social Club. <laughs> <laughs> Strains of their music still, I know, echo through Havana, uh, and particularly old Havana, everywhere I went at any rate. Hunter, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Everything I'm good. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry I didn't bring any cigars. I wasn't sure what the studio smoking policy was. Oh hell! Well, <laughs> well the truth of it is, you should have been here for our 420 show. Huh? Oh, <laughs> right. Uh, cigars are not quite you know, illegal enough for us, or strong enough <laughs> for us. <right? laughs> yeah. We had someone do dabs in the studio once. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So, and and how come I don't get invited for that one? Sorry. I appreciate being here for the big big hurrah, but yeah. I mean, geez, guys, where's the love? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with Hunter Walker, we got lots and lots and lots to talk about, and we want to always want to hear from you uh, on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. But first, 
This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. So you hear a lot of people talking about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez should just go back to bartending, right? They say, oh, she should just go back to bartending. Well, it turns out she is going back to bartending. In fact, she is going back to her district to uh, uh, tend bar to show support for the federal Raise the Wage Act and abolishing below minimum wage for tip workers in uh-huh. New York State. She actually <laughs> tweeted about this <coughs> yesterday where she said to all the silver spoon classists saying they're going to make AOC Barton again, you're in luck. I'll be bartending in New York's 14th this week to promote a national living wage. There you have it. She also says at this event she's going to unveil her newest platform policy, Abolish Sour Mix 2020. Use real citrus juice for your sours, people. You deserve so much better than what you're settling for. Now, there's a cause we can all get behind. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, right? right. Amen. Uh, okay, so we talked yesterday about all the tornadoes that happened over the way, Memorial Day weekend. Five hundred in the last three weeks. That's the story. We've oh, had a I'm lot sorry. of we've had a lot of tornadoes. In fact, <laughs> we have had just cutting right through it. Five hundred. No. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No. Whoa. We've had five five hundred five hundred yeah. tornadoes in the last three weeks, and there's been a noticeable uptick in tornado activity uh, this year compared to recent years. So absolutely. Frightened the video that just horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. They could go through these communities and in just a couple of minutes, just wipe them out. And Netflix yesterday put out a statement uh, saying that they are going to pull all of their business out of the state of Georgia if they don't do something about the new heartbeat abortion law. Now we've talked about how much entertainment hollywood yeah, money goes yeah. into georgia they've they've really built themselves as the place to film movies and tv these days well netflix one of the biggest in the entertainment game has said they will pull all of their products out of filming in georgia unless they fix this law good for them yeah. I mean, you know what i love georgia's a great state but georgia's got to decide whether it wants to be in the 21st century or the 19th century yeah right? yeah you know, absolutely because it's it could go either way and a lot riding at stake there. This is the Bill Press Show. (laughs) On a Wednesday, May 29, uh, welcome everybody. Donald Trump just can't quit Joe Biden. Can't (laughs) stop tweeting about him. And Joe Biden says, keep it coming, man. I'm raising a lot of money off your tweets. (laughs) What is going on? Trying to figure it out. That and a whole lot more here on the Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Whether you're joining us online on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. If you're joining us on the radio, on WCPT out in Chicago, or on television on Free Speech TV, coast to coast, we welcome you to the program. Uh, It is our last Wednesday together for the uh, two-hour version of it, but remember, we'll be podcasting starting next week, and so if you haven't already done so, uh, we want to be sure that uh, you stay with us and we stay with you in the new format. Uh, Go to our website, billpressshow.com. And sign up for the podcast if you haven't already done so. And uh, join us and follow us on Twitter at, it's easy, at BP Show, 
at BP Show. And on this Wednesday, May 29, from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., Hunter Walker covers uh, the White House and generally politics in uh, and anything interesting that's happening for <laughs> Yahoo News. He's everywhere. Uh, but he's here as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. Great to see you, Hunter. Welcome back to the U.S. of A. from uh, <laughs> from Cuba. So I've been to Cuba twice. Beautiful country, beautiful people, lots of potential down there. I think it's, uh, you know, from from an educational point of view, <laughs> you know, cultural point of view, music, ballet, and a political point of view, and tourist point of view, and, and business opportunities for Americans. Uh, I just think it's one of the saddest things that we've let this stupid embargo go on for so long and not just have very healthy exchanges with the Cuban people that would benefit them and us. So you what, know, so what was your take on Cuba? Yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated country. And in yeah. fact, um, the Cubans themselves are very fond of saying, you know... And by the way, they got a government that sucks. <laughs> I mean, let's just acknowledge that. But it, it, so do other places, too. And you ask Cubans about any individual situation from, you know, the food <clears throat> shortages that are going on now to, you know, when can we get a taxi? And the answer often tends to be, is complicado. You know, it's very complicated. And I think that really is the yeah. word that sums yeah. up everything there. Um, you know, you're right. There's a, there's a lot of potential to see there. Um, but you know, the food shortage situation is a, the most urgent and b kind of a perfect example. They import almost all their food. They import almost all their food. Um, and that system has been dealt a very severe blow, uh, double blow by Trump raising sanctions and also by the situation in Venezuela, which was one of their major, major trading partners. I mean, right. all around the country, you'll see these billboards or, or even art made by locals with um, Castro's face and Hugo Chavez's face. Uh, and it says El Mejor Amigo, which means, you know, depending on how you translate it, the best friend or the best of friends. Um, so Venezuela was very important to them. Their economy relied on shipments of Venezuelan crude, um, and they also got a lot of food from there. Take the situation there with the increase in sanctions and, you know, food, particularly chicken, which is a big staple, is really scarce there right now. Um, and, you know, you might wonder why is that happening? You've got a country that has a state workforce, abundant national natural resources. It doesn't make sense. Why couldn't you raise 10,000 chickens on Cuba until you really start to dial into the um, on the ground impact of the embargo? Um, so, you know, I saw one of these urban organoponicos, they call it, these farms that they're trying to do to increase the food supply. And the equipment they're using is straight out of, like, I mean, maybe even earlier than 1950s. Mm. Um, you know, they're hand-watering each row of vegetables um, to put things in rows. They are tilling it with, you know, they have two guys trained to run the oxen teams, um, and they have an old yoke and, and two pair of oxen. Um, so, you know, mass production and modern production is just basically off limits. I mean, everyone talks about the famous cars in Cuba, and what people don't realize is a lot of these are what they call Frankensteins. I mean, they have boat engines or, you know, yeah. in the case yeah. of, I, yeah. I met the guy who runs Cuba's Harley Club, which is a thing they have. They love Harley Davidson's. Um, and the way he maintains these old motorcycles is in some cases, hand lathing his own parts, um, you know, mixing one piston from a car and one piston from another type of bike. Um, you know, they're making do with things people can basically bring in luggage um, mm -hmm. or, you know, things they're able to get in the very minimal number of allowed foreign trade or old stuff that's left over. 
Yeah. And sometimes they make their own parts. I mean, you know, they just they have a way of keeping these cars going, which is amazing. I've been in a couple of little shops where that's what the, you know, they did. And um, and you're right. Uh, I remember we met with a, a one guy who was re, um, refitting and refurbishing these, these uh, classic <laughs> 1950s cars, which yeah. are beautiful to see. Yeah. Uh, and they were buying parts from some shop in California. The only way they could get them to Cuba was the people who would come with parts in their luggage. Yeah, right? if, they, if they basically make a friend, and one of the yeah. two ways you're allowed to, there are basically two ways at this point that you're allowed to go to Cuba from America. You can take an educational trip like I did, or you can do what's called support for the Cuban people, um, where you basically support capitalism in Cuba by staying in you know, the private-run hotels, taking the private cabs, and putting all your money into that. Um, also, uh, Cuban-Americans who have family are able to travel. Um, and those people can bring, you know, about $5,000 worth of goods in. Other foreigners can bring goods in. Also, a lot of Cubans have Spanish citizenship, and they are able to get a lot of stuff in. But, you know, other than that sort of importing by hand, um, the other big mechanism the state has, uh, and this gets to what you were saying about the uh, education, is um, Cuba has a huge workforce of particularly doctors, and they often send them abroad in exchange for goods from foreign countries. And that is you know, one measure of exchange, but it creates a bit of a brain drain there. Right. That is kind of tough. Uh, one thing that a lot of Americans, are, uh, first of all, it's tougher to get into Cuba today than it was. Uh, President Obama m made it easier. Uh, first time I went, it was totally illegal. Second time I went, <laughs> you had to go with some kind of... We're, we're just talking about Bill breaking the law the whole the whole day here. Whoa. <laughs> I, are, are you just getting this all off your chest I near also, the end of the format? I also bro broke the law uh, by bringing cigars back. <laughs> <laughs> no true. comment. I did, yeah, I did, yeah. He brought, I remember you brought me a Cuban cigar. Yeah, there you go. No but, comment. Uh, <laughs> but then What's under Obama, it got a little bit there? easier, and now it's a little bit tougher. But what people realize, it's it's really close. So where did you fly from? So we flew from Miami. Um, and how long? A 45 minutes. Exactly. We it's, flew from Tampa. It was 45 minutes. Yeah. It's I funny mean, because my wife and I are going to- fly to New York or Providence, Rhode Island that fast, right? No. Well, I mean, my wife and I are going to Puerto Rico um, in a couple weeks, and it is um, much further than Cuba, this American territory. And, you know, it's, it's so crazy to be that close to Florida. And Havana is- a city that reminds me of nowhere else I've been in the world. It's You've essentially got 500-year-old buildings mixed in with Soviet brutalist architecture, um, uh, Americana from the 50s, and then people essentially squatting in this stuff. Um, not because... It, and, a, a lot of Cubans have home ownership. It's like 99%. But when I say squatting, I just mean it's so run down that it almost seems like people have you know occupied abandoned property. And then living with this crazy hodgepodge mix of technology from you know, 50 years ago, a little bit from now, a little bit from the 19th century. It's like some kind of like steampunk, like sci-fi vision of like where we could be going. And along that waterfront is one of the most beautiful stretches of, of, of homes that we'd ever see anywhere. And most of them are just falling down. Yeah, there is, you know, there. So so to get to a little bit more of what you were alluding to about the government, um, I what I heard when I was there, there's this large um, military zone um, in part of Havana. Um, where I heard rumors that that's where Raul lives. I didn't get to see it because it's totally fenced off, but supposedly there are nicer um, mm. homes mm -hmm. inside there. Uh, and, you know, I asked um, the state tourism agency guy who was with <laughs> us, I was like, you know, that doesn't really seem to be in the spirit of the revolution to have large, you know, 
mansions back there. And he was like, no, no, no. They're all filled with ambassadors. So <laughs> it seems like some people are, are still living in pretty good conditions there. Cubans maintain none of their officials, but I don't entirely believe that. All right. So welcome back to the land of uh, enchantment and impeachment. <laughs> uh, is it going to happen? What you is know, your take? Uh, well, well, one of the more interesting things uh, that happened in the past uh, week or so was the situation with Justin Amash, where you know you had a Republican, albeit a maverick sort of libert- libertarian who who loves to buck the party, uh, come out in favor of impeachment. Um, and Politico had a great article today recounting a town hall that he did at home, yeah. where there was. We, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna, we played uh, several clips from that earlier, but just I would just want to re- reprise one, uh, which was. His very first question, very first person who got up to ask a question, just uh, s- started this way, and you can hear the response. This is in Grand Rapids, Michigan, <laughs> Trump country, right? His district, town hall. First, I want to salute your courage. And that's... Well, it goes on and on, and that's the first standing ovation of the night from this Republican crowd for Justin Amash. Not everybody agreed with him, but they loved the game. No, and what was interesting was that even some of the people who disagreed with him said they appreciated him exactly. for standing by his convictions. Yeah. He, there were some direct opponents of what he did there, but, right. um, but... But for the most part, they said, yeah, you know, you're, yeah. you're a man has got some principle and believes, and you're doing your job. But I, I salute him too, but did he make any difference? You know... When I, I was, I, uh, prior to leaving, I was gone for a week, I, I really was following the impeachment thing very closely. And, you know, as, uh, it, as, as of sort of when Warren really kicked this conversation into high gear, uh, what I was hearing from House Democrats is that they expected um, that he, you know, first off, Pelosi seemed to kind of waffle on this. She sent unclear messages to even, I think, people in her caucus um, where she initially seemed to indicate impeachment was totally off the table and then kind of modified away from that view. Mm-hmm. As yeah. that was all going on, I heard from even some leading uh, leading people that it wasn't a matter of if he would be impeached, it was a matter of when. And that there was a whole question of what was the strategy behind this. And they point back to the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which was a process that actually only lasted a matter of months. And, you know, it's it's pretty craven to think like this. But from a political standpoint, they view impeachment as a potential weapon. You're putting the president on trial. And do you want to do that and have it fail? You know, if you did it right now, that would be by like fall of this year. Very far from the election. Gives him time to recover particularly when, you know, given the makeup of the Senate right now, the McConnell Senate, you're very unlikely to have impeachment actually succeed. So, you know, given the fact they don't see impeachment as likely working, they really are thinking of it as a political tool and a show you can put on during the election. So the thinking is sort of delay, 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 but eventually do it. And what I had heard was, you know, Bring people out, bring up witnesses, and sort of lay the groundwork, mm-hmm. uh, both to, in that craven way, postpone it, but also to show the people why you're doing this. Uh, a key part of this was bringing in Bob Mueller to testify. Uh, and people were saying to me, you know, they know that most of the American public hasn't even come close to reading the full Mueller report. Oh, yeah. And the testimony of, say, McGon, say, Mueller, would be a quote-unquote visual representation of the Mueller report that might get people to understand 
um, why they needed to pursue impeachment. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I feel like, you know, this is Democrats kind of assuming a normal world, as they so often do, and assuming that their, you know, rivals are going to play by the same rules they want to. And as we see right now, they are not even able to get this testimony that they've wanted to compel uh, to lay the groundwork for impeachment. So I think it's going to be interesting to see as their efforts to bring in witnesses um, are being thwarted, does that push them to um, get more aggressive on impeachment? Because right. the playbook they were planning to run of not necessarily going for impeachment, but kind of you know, having big days of congressional testimony just does not seem to be working. Well, one thing that I hear, and I think you're alluding to that without calling it as such, is that um, there's a sort of middle ground, which is an impeachment inquiry, which would lead to impeachment hearings. But that's the way where they could... I, I think they'd have more uh, opportunity to compel more witnesses, maybe not of Robert Mueller, and get maybe even some more documents in an impeachment inquiry, which is looking into whether or not we're going to go ahead and impeach. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that is really interesting and is kind of a wild card here, and, and you know, the people who've talked to me about this are not even sure that necessarily uh, her office knows the tools that she has because we're dealing with a freshman here. Um, but do you remember when um, Congressman Al Green pushed an impeachment vote? Uh, what oh, was it? oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So the mechanism, uh, basically, he had put out a resolution of inquiry. And because of that, after a certain amount of time with Pelosi not making a vote on it, he was allowed to bring it to the floor. Mm -hmm. And the resolution proposed by I think any member can at after any a time certain, or. I, or I believe that when you make that type of resolution, if it doesn't hit the floor in a certain amount of time, it can it it, it can be brought to the floor. I think yeah, there's okay. a time limit, but right. I'm not. But this no, is me just. Either. Yeah. But there is a there is a mechanism by which because Al Green was here a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. and he said he still intends to bring it to the floor. Well, he was just not going to say when. This is not the only one now. No. Because you have Congresswoman Talib's resolution, which can also be brought to the floor in a similar way. So, you know, the situation may in multiple levels be out of Nancy Pelosi's hands because you have these resolutions that at some point could be brought to a floor vote. Um, and, you know, certainly I think it's fair to say, particularly in the direct aftermath of the Mueller report, there was growing momentum on the Dem side for doing this. So, uh, you know, one big thing I would say for people to watch throughout the summer is whether any of these resolutions hit the floor uh, and whether the Dems just sort of push this, whatever the strategy of leadership might be. Right. Uh, interesting. You mentioned the timing um, because we hear various d different versions of that, that um, uh, John Yarmouth, chair of the Budget Committee, who has been signed the articles of impeachment last year, mm -hmm. right? Now he's part of the leadership, so he's not as far out in front, <laughs> but he's still indicated. Yeah. I mean, he's part of the he, – he does believe he's that the president's committed impeachable offenses and they should proceed. But – it's a question of when. Yarma's point was that this is something they can't do in 2020. Uh, and they can't, they, they, they're not ready now, but they can't wait too much longer. He, he was indicating maybe Labor Day, that they've got a fish or cut bait by Labor Day. Oh, by Labor Day 2019. Yeah, 2019. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. No, 2019. Well, you know, that yeah. would be an interesting time to do it because, again, if you're looking at the Clinton roadmap and assuming that it would last, say, three months or so, 
you're looking at a process that, you know, assuming recesses for the holidays mm -hmm. um, would end in early 2020, which is right around the time of primaries. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think is so important to note for, for your viewers and just in general, we are right now sitting here talking about this in purely political terms, not legal terms. And so many people here in Washington, including the Democrats, are talking about it in these political terms. And, yeah. and you know, that is, is that how it's supposed to be? I don't know. You know, Justin Amash is someone who said, you know, look, I'm getting a pro-Trump primary challenge right now because I'm doing this. Um, he has essentially no backing for what he's doing in his own party right now. But, you know, on principle and on, you know, sort of his interpretation of the Constitution, he felt he needed to do this. Yeah. That is very far from the conversation that we're having and that Democrats but, are sort of having right uh, now. I, I think it's a very good point, but you know, one way around that, or not around that, but maybe one way to get it more on legal terms would be testimony by Robert Mueller. Yeah, but if that's getting thwarted, <laughs> who knows? But you know, I think the... Um, uh, I, I hear more, I, it's just throwing, I hear more and more uh, privately, mm -hmm. maybe a little publicly, criticism of Mueller mm -hmm. uh, from uh, people, members that I've talked to and senators that I've talked to, that that he owes us, you know, having kept us quiet all during the the, the, the investigation, and we, and we admired him for that and everything, that now he's got to come forward and say, here's what I found out, and here's why. You know, I think the liberals who were buying Mueller time t-shirts and, and yeah, prayer candles yeah. of St. Robert on Etsy <laughs> are, are kind of discovering that he was not the uh, revolutionary, you know, uh, progressive hero they wanted. And this is a guy who is a very traditional establishment DOJ orders follower and, and he's getting his orders. Mm -hmm. And then you've got people like Hope Hicks and Don McGahn who seem to be um, you know, putting loyalty over legal obligation to testify. Um, but, you know, I, one thing that's important when I make the point that these are political concerns, you know, I just feel obligated to point that out to readers. But the bottom line is this is all happening in a political process. Uh, you know, maybe in an ideal world, it wouldn't be that way, but everything is politics. And I think one of the most important dynamics here, I did earlier this month a story um, going inside the Trump campaign um, and they are feeling great right now. Uh, they're planning to raise over a billion dollars. Uh, this time, mm. about four years ago, uh, I was really one of the few people covering Trump in its early phases because no one gave him a chance. And, you know, it was him and four or five guys in an office. That was the Trump campaign. Sam Nunberg, Roger Stone, mm -hmm. Michael Cohen, the future president, you know, sitting there just kind of working the phones and, and having this, you know, guerrilla ad hoc campaign. And, you know, this time there's a full pack. Uh, Linda McMahon just went over to run it. Um, it is expecting to raise a ton of money. Uh, the Trump campaign itself has, you know, dozens of staffers already set up in an office tower in Arlington. Um, they have a pretty fully formed strategy. And a lot of that strategy is predicated on the fact that Democrats have, you know, you have 20 Democrats in this primary. They're going to beat up on each other. Trump is already running this aggressive rally schedule yeah uh, and yeah. he has oh. no rival and they feel pretty strongly and of course this is what they would say so take this with a grain of salt that a the Mueller report worked out really well from them and b impeachment would work out well for them as well because they think you know it would be seen as democrats focused on partisanship rather than moving on and governing right um, i want to come back to uh, the and by the way that last point is a point that was made too that we could be playing 
right, we would be playing right into Donald Trump's hands. Mm-hmm. That then he would run, uh, you know, playing the victim card from now until November 2020. Uh, I'm going to come back to the Democratic side for a second because you very early, I remember, uh, were out there. Yes, you followed Donald Trump four years ago. But you very early were out there, did a big profile, followed around Cory Booker mm-hmm. um, because you saw that he was going to jump in, look like it was really going to run and could be a major factor. What's happened to Cory Booker? Well, geez, Bill, it's it's almost like you spoke to my editor and know the story that I have due today. <laughs> oh, all right. Shoot. Um, I guess I'm going to give everybody a preview. But, okay. But, you know, things, things have not worked out um, the way many people saw them working out for Cory Booker. This is a guy... Starting with Cory Booker himself. We'll get there in a second. This is a guy who, you know, was one of the earliest social media superstars, built up a huge national reputation as mayor of Newark, um, came into the presidential race, seen as one of the leading candidates, um, and, you know, never really got above single digits in the polls. Um, He's shed a point or two of support um, but more importantly, he's seen himself be passed by some of his Senate colleagues and even people with far less profile than he had uh, in Beto and, and Buttigieg. Um, he is still, you know, sort of hanging on to the edge of the top tier. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at those proposed changes to the debate structure, he would be, <laughs> you know, one of the eight candidates who looks like they would make it. So he's he's not dead in the water, but this is right. not the, you know, leading. You know, I think people saw him as headed much more where Warren and maybe Harris are, uh, and that hasn't happened yet. Uh, but if you talk to his campaign, they claim that, you know, this focus on national polls and horse race stuff is kind of noise, and they are keeping their heads down, and, and um, you know, they, they are fond of using internally. If you follow a couple Cory Booker staffers on Twitter, you'll quickly see that hashtag, uh, brick by brick. Uh, and they are very focused on building infrastructure in early states, um, and also doing a lot of campaigning out there. So that is one prong of their strategy. And I can say that even rivals have told me um, Cory Booker's staff, particularly in Iowa and South Carolina, his groundwork and staff there is better than almost anybody else's. Mm-hmm. So, you know, will that end up, you know, leading to surprises that we don't necessarily see in the national polls? It's it's certainly a plausible argument. The other thing that's part of their strategy and and is policy. And, you know, everyone very rightfully acknowledges that Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I I was seeing today, Beto came out Uh, with his immigration plan and it's his second policy. Elizabeth Warren is up over 20. Um, Booker's actually in about second place with hmm, like eight. uh, And I, you know, eight to 10. I'm not sure, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but, you know, basically in the world of policy, you have Elizabeth Warren just blitzing everybody, um, a bunch of people with one or two, and Booker's is in a sole place in the middle, uh, particularly with his big gun control rollout. Yeah. Um, you know, so th- they are. That is another part of the strategy is to sort of distinguish him as someone with a real, uh, fully formed platform. At the same time, you know, as those polls are showing so far, that does not seem to be catching fire yeah. with, with the well, public. Uh, and I, we, I uh, ask you more about your, uh, your. I read your piece about uh, Elizabeth Warren. C- certainly true. She's leading the pack in terms mm-hmm. of rolling out policy documents. But back to Cory Booker, I mean, let's acknowledge and remind ourselves, it is still early. Yes. Uh, he could he could easily break out. He's a very attractive candidate. He's got a great life story. He's a very good retail campaigner, right? Uh, as good as anybody on mm-hmm. his feet, right? 
Um, and um, but so far he hasn't broken out, right? So far he's in, as you pointed out, I think he's in that. Is that close the, to the bleeding top. edge of the top tier? <laughs> exactly, close to the top tier, but not quite there. And interestingly, a mayor of a small town, a smaller town, Pete Buttigieg, and Kamala Harris, I think, are the two people that might have taken slots that. I, I think you know, Buttigieg uh, presents the most direct contrast to him and is very right. interesting because, you know, one thing that I'm seeing and, and a lot of smart people I talk to see as a challenge for Cory Booker is that, you know, Buttigieg, there's all this excitement about sort of everything he does. He's had all these little viral moments. Um, and Cory Booker, I think part of the problem he has is he got so much press around being a mayor uh, and these cool things he was doing almost 10 years ago. You know, and if you look at Buttigieg, that long ago, really? yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it was yeah. uh, prior to 2012. Yeah, um, Street Fight, the movie was was set around 2006 when he had that upstart uh, race against Sharp James that he lost and then came back wow. in. Wow. So we forget this is someone who's been around for like 10 years. Yeah. And whereas Buttigieg, you know, everyone's like, wow, he you know has this military background. Wow, he has this stellar academic resume. Wow, he what? speaks bits of these languages. We're not getting, wow, Cory Booker's a Rhodes Scholar. Wow, he was an All-American football player. Wow, he's basically a scholar of Judaism who like ran Chabad House while he was on his Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford. Wow, Cory Booker saved the baby from a burning building. Wow, Cory Booker housed people in his house during Sandy. And you know why we're, we're not getting that? Because, I mean, I, those are stories I wrote, uh, you know, about 10 years 10 ago. 10 years ago. Everyone already wrote them, and it's hard both for the huh. media and yeah. Cory Booker himself to tell those stories again. So whereas Buttigieg, every little bit yeah, of his bio gets new press. For Corey, we've already right. told that story. So, and I think that's part of why yeah. his campaign must be focusing on policy right now, which is uh, a which, meritorious yeah. thing to do anyway. But but he needs to tell a new story now. But I think as you were alluding to, as long as he can kind of maintain where he is, he shouldn't be counted out because yeah. the debate stage is gonna be a big, big deal. Um, and right. he is someone who has a very solid uh, speaking and presentation ability and a you know, could have a moment there. Yeah, absolutely. And on that point, uh, the DNC out with its new rules for the third and fourth debates as of today. And we'll get into that. Uh, we'll take a quick break. And then joining us at the table, Ellen Nelson from uh, Vox covers po politi politics and policy. We're both talk talking about both here. Uh, Hunter Walker stays with us as a friend of Bill, and all of you stay with us, too, and we'll be right back after this break. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Wednesday, May 29, what do you say, folks? Great to see you today, and thanks so much for joining us, the Bill Press Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And we're with you today, thanks to the good help uh, and support of our good friends from the American Federation of Teachers. Members of the AFT Teachers of America under President Randy Weingarten uh, doing a great job in the classrooms of America every day uh, and uh, also very active on the political front. The teachers have made a big difference the last couple of years uh, in terms of um, uh, going out and getting the public behind them and their students behind them to get uh, not just better pay for teachers but better conditions for America's schools. Uh, check out their website at AFT.org. Hunter Walker here for the entire hour as a friend of Bill from Yahoo News. Hunter, good to have you here. Thank, Thank you, Bill. 
Uh, and Ellen Nilsson joins us now from Vox, also covering politics and policy for the great Vox. Hello, Ellen. Nice to see you. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. All right. And um, so we were just talking about Cory Booker um, and Elizabeth Warren. And, and Hunter, you've read, written just recently about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Ella, there's no doubt. I mean, she, in terms of, is number one, maybe not in the polls, but in terms of pumping out policy documents. Oh, she yeah. must have a whole think tank of her own, right? Yeah, I, I mean, she, yeah, it's been it's been impressive, and it's like you know, it's like the big issues, then some smaller issues. You know, it's she kind of has everything covered. Uh, yeah, I've heard she's been reaching out to. Um, pretty obscure subject area experts and, and, you know, holding sessions with them and getting input on this. I mean, these are not, these are not um, short things. I mean, they're, they're presented succinctly, but these are pretty well thought out, detailed proposals. Here. Right. Yeah. Now, um, do people care? I think so. I mean, I, when I was in, when I was in Nevada recently, uh, I was at a, an event of hers and, you know, certainly these were people that were interested in her uh, showing up to this event. But a number of people mentioned to me that they really appreciate the specificity of her plans. And I think even more so appreciate the fact, you know, she has her her ultra millionaire tax that, you know, she has proposed will will pay for. Uh, a certain number of these programs. And I think in particular, people really appreciated that she was laying out in detail how she would pay for some of these items rather than just kind of like giving these these big ideas and then not really following through on, on you know, how this is going to be paid for. I, I really love the one big idea. There was that comedian who tweeted, uh, do you think Elizabeth Warren has a plan to fix my love life? <laughs> and Elizabeth Warren tweeted back to her and said, DM me and let's figure this out. <laughs> she has a plan for everything. Uh and Peter, we had that clip yesterday where she was saying she had a, a plan for, it was co- um, corruption. She has a, a big anti-corruption uh, yeah. ag- agenda. In, in overall, Do we have that? Yeah. Here, here, here's just to let her make yeah. the point, right? Here's the good news. <laughs> I have the biggest anti-corruption plan since Watergate. <laughs> right. Yay! <laughs> here's the bad news. We need the biggest anti-corruption <laughs> plan since Watergate. Yeah, so you were saying. Yeah, so her, her team, you know, stresses the point that all of these policies uh, she's pushing are centered around the goal of increasing fairness and, and you know, uh, going after structural inequities. Uh, and that they see that as very much an extension of her life's work. I think, you know, some of I believe she's got a nuclear first strike policy. I think some of the more obscure stuff has not uh, gotten very much attention. But overall, the branding of her as, you know, the policy candidate, uh, the inequality candidate has been pretty successful for her, I think. Right. Uh, and, and Ella, you and I may have talked about this, but I, I've always held that Elizabeth Warren's first challenge is beating Bernie Sanders. Right. In terms of that that track, if you will, right uh, now, Bernie is it was certainly the one that came out with all the bold new policy ideas in 2016. Sure. Uh, but to a large extent, he's still doing the same speech that he gave in 2016, where she, Elizabeth Warren has those things which, for the most part, she agrees with, but has added all the rest. Right. Yeah, I think she's trying to distinguish herself and kind of set this marker even even further out. I mean, on the the health, I'm sorry, the education plan, the higher education plan that she released. I mean, you know, he in 2016 made waves by by saying we should have tuition free college. Um, And since then, I feel like the conversation has kind of shifted. And then she kind of set down this bold marker being like, we should have 
tuition-free college, but then also erase student loan debt, you know, existing student loan debt for for millions of Americans. Um, and yeah, there I feel like there have been a number of things. Um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but but recently he he released a plan that I feel like was was kind of similar to something that she had already released. Um, so yeah, I think that she kind of wants to sort of create this idea that you know, whereas he was sort of this big trailblazer on policy in 2016, she has now taken that mantle and that he is sort of playing catch up to her. So she could out Bernie Bernie. <laughs> well, I, I saw this really interesting analysis last night from or yesterday morning from um, Harry Enten on CNN. Uh, and he was honing in on this one stat that showed that in 2016 polls, um, Bernie was getting a lot of his support from the people who were paying most attention to the election. Mm-hmm. Early out, and it's it's very important to point out that it is it is very early, and early polls are often very wrong. Um, but this time around, Bernie is actually those numbers have completely flipped, and the biggest part of his support um, is coming from people who are not paying that much attention. And so I think some of what's happening is that Bernie built himself this base in yeah, 2016. Yeah, yeah. And these are the folks who are, if you'll forgive me, ready to be burned again. Um, and they um, they are with him right now. And they, they almost don't need to pay attention because they're not looking at anyone else. Um, but and, that does give him an advantage. Yeah, I mean, sure. But that's also a, a certain disadvantage, too, right, in that not bringing in new people. Yeah, I mean, it, it. You know, it'll be interesting to see how much Bernie can get new people uh, on his train, particularly when he has. You know, he had that lane all to himself last time, and I think, yes. as right. you were saying, right. um, Warren is, if anything, outstripping him. One of the things that I find most interesting about her policy proposals is how many of them can be paid for just with this ultra millionaires tax. I mean, I don't think people realize that. I mean, the education and the healthcare components are all covered by it. I think other parts are as well. And this is a tax that is 2% on every dollar someone makes in yearly income over $50 million. So it's a, it's a small tax that affects a very small percentage of people. I think they say it's the 0.01%. And yet it, it allows so mm-hmm. many programs. And I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a really uh, compelling point for her to make on the debate stage and going forward. Yeah. And when you see her talk about that tax on on the stump, I mean, she she makes, to, to your point, she makes that point. She's like, this is, you know, this is a tiny tax. We're taking a you know, fraction of, of uh, you know, percentage <laughs> off, off of the, these people's wealth. And, and it's going to generate so much money that, that we can put into these programs. So she's really making the point that, you know, this is something that is common sense, essentially. Uh, I saw so I saw something. Um, this may get a little wonky here, but uh, I was intrigued by it. So Niall Standage, who's a good friend from the Hill, um, does his uh, top ten, and uh, not every week, but every other month, I think it is. So he came out with one yesterday. Th- these are the top ten that he sees now among the the twenty twenty candidates, uh, compared to how they were in February. Interesting. I'll, I'll run through them real quickly. I'd love to get your comments. Joe Biden, number one, but he was number two in the February poll. Bernie Sanders, number two, he was number three in February. Elizabeth Warren, number three, she was five in February, so she's come up. Kamala Harris, number four, she was one mm-hmm. in February. Fifth is Pete Buttigieg, didn't even make the top ten in February. Six, Beto O'Rourke. Uh, was number four in February. Cory Booker, number seven, was six in February. Amy Klobuchar, eight, was seven in February. Julian Castro, on the list, wasn't on the list in February. And Andrew Yang, 
Not ranked in February. <laughs> the Yang Gang. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's just Bernie going down a little bit. Joe Biden, um, I, th- I thought it was even on top in February. But Elizabeth Warren um, moving up. And um, and Kamala Harris right up there, too. Notice who's not on the list, Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah, you... Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, you go. Um, you, you were saying this uh, as we were going into the break, you know, that you think um, Castro is interesting and could potentially have a moment. But yeah. I, I, I think that, um, you know, obviously, as, as Niall was capturing there, the, the rise of Warren, uh, the, the emergence of Buttigieg, and, of course, the entry of Biden are, I think, the big uh, changes mm-hmm. we've seen to the dynamic so far. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that DNC rule change is is really interesting because it really does seem to capture what I see as the real top tier. Um, you know, eight or so candidates. And that, as of now, would not include Gillibrand. Mm -hmm. It would not include Castro. Um, And I think Gillibrand particularly is someone who just, I mean, you know, whether, whether it works out or not, I think, you know, we Booker has a plausible case to make for himself. He has a strategy. He's in that third debate as of now. He's on the edge of the top tier. Gillibrand is someone who came in with pretty lofty hopes, and she is just dead in the water. I'm not seeing any good metric for her. I'm not hearing anything about her. And I just don't think that was the way it was supposed to go. She and Bill de Blasio, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. The New, the New York candidates are struggling a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with what Hunter said. And I, I do think, you know, she was she was going to come in. And, and, and I think that sort of the strategy was coming off of 2018 as sort of the this, you know, year of the woman in the midterms. You know, I think that that certainly there was some thought going in and appealing to to women voters, appealing on issues of Me Too, which she's made a, a big part of her candidacy and a big part of her her career so far. There was obviously Politico uh, broke a story that there was and she had an, uh, you know, her one of her staff members sort of had his own Me Too scandal in, in mm-hmm. her office that I don't know if that really hurt her or if if just sort of her lack of name recognition. And, and I also think um, I was talking to some pollsters about Gillibrand a, a few months ago. And one of the things that they mentioned was that her unfavorables were slightly higher among Democratic men. Uh, which I thought was was interesting. Oh. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with with Al Franken um, and the fallout from that, but um, yeah, something something worth noting. Well, I had heard that she she's had fair or unfair real problems with donors um, because they're upset that oh. she pushed for Franken's resignation, oh, yeah. no, and that I, has been a major. Uh, I know issue that for, for a fact. Yeah, some donors have have, have told me that. Right. Mm. One one thing I think is super interesting. Obviously, Joe Biden has the name recognition, and that's a big part of his lead. But I think as we're seeing with this Twitter spat he had with Donald Trump, Cory Booker and so many of these other folks uh, distinguished their entry into the race by saying they were not going to make it about Trump. They were not going to talk about Trump. Joe Biden walked in there with a video, you know, invoking Charlottesville and, you know, from the get go has just, you know, not been afraid to make his candidacy about opposition to Trump. And I think that's something that really distinguishes him from the rest of the field. And so far, it seems to be working. I mean, for everyone else, Trump is like Voldemort, like he, he shall not be named, right? And yeah. Joe Biden is just like jumping into that fight. And it, it gets your free-earned media from Trump, and it seems to be working well. I was going to say, by the way, he's had a lot of assistance in that yeah. from Donald Trump himself, right? Uh, He's basically rented a free campaign office in the president's head. (laughs) (laughs) No, yes. And Biden has been putting out emails, fundraising emails, saying, you know, We've got him rattled. You know, right. So. It feels like he's kind of just running a general election campaign rather than, than a primary campaign. Which works to Biden's advantage. I'm not sure how it works to Trump's advantage. But, right. Um, you, you, we, we alluded a couple of times, and I uh, very early in, this, in, the, uh, in the program, for those of you who were with us, I mentioned 
um, what the DNC has announced today, um, which is worth batting around a little bit here. Uh, so we know that the first debates are next month, June 26-27 in Miami, uh, and then on uh, NBC, MSNBC, Telemundo. Uh, the second debate in July in Detroit on CNN, uh, July 30-31. And that was the 1% in three polls and 65,000 donors, at least 220 states. Then taking the month of August off, then they come back in September and October. We don't know where, we don't know what networks, but we do know that they've upped the, upped the <laughs> ante here a little bit. Uh, you have to be at 2% now in four national polls that they've identified. And on the grassroots side, it's either or. On the grassroots side, it's 130,000 donors and 400 in at least 20 states. So that's going to winnow out the field, Yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, especially with, I mean, I, I think that right Plus now... some people will drop out on their own, maybe. But. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, keep in mind, we have 23 candidates in right 24. now. Uh, 24. Don't forget Mike Gravel. Oh, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that's a, that's a field that needs winnowing. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> there are not enough, there are not enough debate slots for to, to accommodate everybody right now. So, I mean, I, I think it only makes sense. You know, uh, Hunter, I like these criteria for the first debates, for the first two, and for the second two. I mean, I think you should show some grassroots strength, right? And uh, this is a little test. I mean, look, when I was at the uh, Iowa State Party dinner last year, I was talking to some of the insiders, and they were saying in the field, looked like it was going to be big, but not not this big. Yeah. You know, they were already like, it's going to be a logistical challenge. Everyone's going to want to speak here. Um, we'll probably have to do two nights. Um, there are reasons it is literally not manageable um, to have a field this big. I mean, I think people are, are tuning out a lot of these town halls. I mean, it, it's it's we were talking earlier about voters not paying a ton of attention uh, it, it, and not learning about some of these people that they don't know about. I, th I think it is just a little bit too big. Um, and you're seeing a lot. I, I personally think, again, that, that that third debate seems to be an accurate representation of a viable top tier. Uh, those criteria, and you're not seeing the kind of storm and drying over um, proposed DNC rules that we saw in 2016. I, I think mm -hmm. part of that is because I, I don't think anyone thinks we can work with a field this big. Um, and I think also, you know, no progressives are being shut out here. I mean, Bernie is one of the leading candidates. Warren is one of the leading candidates. These are not rules that seem, you know, questionably motivated like some of what we saw uh, in 2016. The, the trick is, um, I, I believe, Ella, is, and, and Tom, Tom Perez, Chairman Perez, and I talked about this when he was on the show last week, is how do you decide who appears on which night? Right? Yeah, right. Now, he says it's going to be totally random yeah. because they don't want it to be varsity and JV. Yes, he told me that too. Right. Uh, but, you know, if they pull the names, just pull the names out of the hat, it could end up that way. Right. Who knows, right? I, I just told Tom, I said, I don't care how you figure it out, but you got to have some big names and little names on both nights, right? Well, for, just to keep people tuned in for another thing. And the other thing that's interesting is I feel like there are a number of candidates um, that are kind of banking on being, you know, their their big moment is going to be taking a shot at Joe Biden. And so that if it is totally random, I mean, their, their big breakout moment is just totally up to chance, essentially. Yeah. 
I don't know. You, you don't think you can get like a lot of traction by just like going straight at de Blasio and taking it to him? <laughs> the subways don't work, man. <laughs> but, you, you know, I, I used to cover um, TV trade out in Hollywood. And one thing I think they're doing that's really important is they are making these debates on weeknights. Yes. And the difference, yes. there's no real massive difference uh, in primetime ratings from one weeknight to another. Uh, and so I think that's really fair. If you get a Tuesday versus a Wednesday uh, and you have sort of a random assortment and you're on stage with top people, you're getting a pretty fair shot. Whereas if you remember last time when Bernie was debating Hillary, they would hold a lot of these on weekends. Oh, yeah. And I remember talking to Sunday De- nights. Yeah, I, I remember night. talking to Debbie Wasserman Schultz in New Hampshire when I think we were at a debate on a Saturday. Uh, and I said to her, you know, why are you doing this uh, on a night that has lower ratings? And she sort of tried to uh, uh, Nielsen explain it to me and said, you know, um, actually, Saturday night is one of the biggest ratings nights on TV. And it was a bald face lie. And I responded to her with, mm-hmm. no, I covered I did Nielsen reports daily for two years. <laughs> and she just like vaporized into the back into the scrum. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think I think we're seeing a much more fair uh, process from the Perez regime at the DNC. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I felt that, that, that I believe don't that they have Bernie and Joe should not be on stage the same night. Right. <laughs> Bernie one night and Joe the next night right. and then start from there. But but so it's got to be fair, but it's also got to be rigged I think, <laughs> <laughs> to make it work. Um even maybe more importantly, and certainly prior to these debates getting started, we got the ongoing debate. Uh, this week it's been Joe Biden and Donald Trump, which we talked a little bit about. But it, at last week was all about Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. Who yeah. won that debate? Well, I, I honestly, at this point, I don't know. I mean, I think that Pelosi certainly was able to you know, continue coming out and and looking calm, whereas Trump obviously was not. Oh, well, um, that's not what Kellyanne Conway said. Well, <laughs> well, Pelosi said she doesn't she doesn't talk to staff. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Very that dismissively. Was a, that was the biggest put down of all. <laughs> yeah, the greatest. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was uh, fun to watch at the press conference. But yeah, I mean, well, infrastructure lost, I guess, but it never really. I think had a chance to to begin with, but clearly Nancy Pelosi knows uh, how to get under Donald Trump's skin. She does, but I think that you know when we were talking about impeachment uh, in the in the last hour, uh, there's a lot of upset in her caucus at her and how she's handled him and how she's handled that in particular. And I think that you know. I mean, in general, you'd see this. You saw some of this, uh, you know, even before Trump. At the same time that she's sort of battling him, I think there are also members of her own caucus who kind of have their eye on her job. Uh, and she's going to be in a bit of a two-front of two front war, uh, kind of ongoing, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as she tries to hold on to leadership. I don't know. It seems to me that those who have an eye—I mean, there's cer- certainly some who disagree with her timing on impeachment, mm-hmm. but they're clear, and, and have been vocal about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but those who have their eye on her job— Maybe they ought, they ought to think about how well that worked out the last time. <laughs> well, but right? hey, Seth Moulton. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's about to be president. <laughs> 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 I know. But I s- yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. I, well, I'm just going to say, I saw Seth Moulton on MSNBC Saturday or whatever, and uh, 
and he was asked about Nancy, and he came out in full defense of Nancy, <laughs> and nobody asked, wait a minute, weren't you the one who was trying to say she should not have that job? It's almost like a lot of the people on TV don't even know who he is. Ah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Candidate 22, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that both Seth Moulton and Tim Ryan are running for president right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I was going to say is, I mean, I think that Pelosi is in this is in this really tough situation right now. And, and the, the talk around impeachment has shifted, I think, from talk about the Mueller report and Russia to just Trump's continued obstruction, um, you know, of, of congressional subpoenas. And You know, I think that that Democrats just have a lot of not really good options in front of them on how to on how to deal with it. You know, an impeachment inquiry, a lot of people who who were opposed to an impeachment inquiry were saying, you know, this is just going to land us back in the courts like like everything else, essentially, because they're just going to keep fighting us. So, you know, why why move forward with it? But I think that there is this debate on on how strong the caucus needs to go and people that that think that she's not going strong enough. And, you know, she points out they won three times in the courts last week. Right. So this strategy is working. And that debate does continue. But we don't because we're out of time. Uh, Hunter Walker, great to see you, man. It's been fun having you part of the program for so long. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. We continue as a podcast. And you too, Ella. We'll see lots of you. Uh, Vox.com and YahooNews.com. And have a great day, folks. See you tomorrow. the Bill Press Show. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.